Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm really excited to share this episode with you. With me, I have two special guests, Melissa Bridges, Performance and Innovation Coordinator at the City of Little Rock, and Whitney Sonskin, Deputy Chief Information Officer at City of New Orleans, where I live. So it's very exciting. We're going to be talking about city data and how it can be used to empower our communities. This episode is sponsored by Tyler Technologies, and you'll hear more about them mid-episode. So I guess we can get started. I want to know how both of you began working in data in the first place. Like, was it through positions that you already had with the government or were you already in data and went to the government after that? So my path to to working in data is kind of a weird one. Um, When I originally started out working in local government, it was back in 1997, And it was right after I'd finished my master's in public administration and was working in the mayor's office and city manager's office and did a variety of different things at the city. But then I actually kind of ran off and skipped the country and went and joined the Peace Corps and was down in Honduras for a couple of years. When I came back to the States, I was working at a nonprofit with um, the Latino community and then ended up moving to New Jersey, where my husband is from, and actually worked for New York Presbyterian Hospital for about five years on their team that handled all of the data for their purchasing system. Um, we were charged with creating all of the items in the system. So if a doctor needed to order a syringe or a scalpel or you name it. Um, so it was kind of that was kind of where I really, really got heavily into data work was working on that team because we were working with international data standards and making sure things were correct in the system because depending on what items you were ordering and who they were for, it might have been a life and death type situation. Um, And like I said, did that for about five years and then came back to Little Rock as the network security manager in the IT department. And that is so not my background but had an existing working relationship with the guy that was the IT director from when I had worked at the city the first time. And that man knows everything there is to know about everything. He's actually worked at the city since he was 18 years old and pretty much taught me everything that, that I needed to know about configuring networks and creating redundant data centers and building um, interlooping fiber networks and, everything that we did in, in the, I guess it was six years that I worked with him. Um, and then in 2015 was when the opportunity to like really take on my current role came about. And it was through working with the Bloomberg Philanthropies What Work Cities Initiative, which is a national initiative to work with various different cities on best practices on how you use your data as a critical asset and how you create those data standards and all of all of those things that the hospital had in place because they were used to it because of their organization, but it's not this normal thing in local government to do. So it was a brand new position that got created in 2016. And then I moved full-time into my position, which is the performance and innovation coordinator. It's kind of a weird title. Um, doing the data functions that I do at the city now full time in 2017. Well, I'll go ahead and jump in there. Um, unlike you, Melissa, I did not get any training in um, networking and systems and data centers uh, as a concept. So um, I kind of wish I did, and it's not too late. But um, I kind of fell backwards into both data and um, government. Uh, My background is in journalism. 
So um, that was my undergrad degree. That's what I started out doing. And I realized really quickly that that uh, wasn't my path. And I really wanted to help people. And um, that led me to an AmeriCorps program. And I did that program for two years where I I ran um, a youth volunteer uh, program in Boston. And as I was doing that, you know, to, to organize my life doing that program, I made a lot of spreadsheets. And um, eventually the parent organization to the organization I was working for said, oh, you guys are going to get a CMS, right? And who's going to take the lead on putting your data into this CMS? And I was like, sure, because I said yes to pretty much anything that people asked me to do. <laughs> um, so I started down the path of learning this CMS, and um, I think it was Drupal-based. And, um, you know, that, that led me into making sure that the data was structured in a way that made sense and um, the mantra garbage in, garbage out, and um, really was this, person who built this system for um, our little nonprofit. And I didn't really think too much of it. Um, I just was like, oh, this is good. I got these skills. And as I grew in my career, I kept taking on roles where I was essentially the communications, marketing, and data slash technology person. They just always would throw that into my bucket because when you work at nonprofits as in government you wear a lot of hats so um, I did that a lot I went from working locally to regionally and then nationally at different nonprofits um, and I was working in DC um, and just pretty much over the DC scene not not really interested in being there anymore looking for a move back to some local work and um, like Melissa, I found my local opportunity with the Bloomberg Philanthropy Program. And I was a part of the first cohort of, um, they were called Innovation Delivery Teams. And I was the first um, fellow, I was one of the first fellows in that cohort. Um, there were five cities in that cohort. It was New Orleans, Chicago, Atlanta, Louisville, and Memphis. And so all the fellows were charged with leading all the data initiatives for um, those programs. And I jumped, you know, right back into my data life and found out really quickly that the focus of the Bloomberg Initiative in New Orleans and, and one of the focuses was on um, reducing violence, particularly homicides which, you know, uh, is just a crazy task. And so through that, I started looking through the consent decree. The New Orleans Police Department had entered into a consent decree with the federal government um, right as I came on. And I started looking for different things that we could use to improve the police department that were low-hanging fruit. And the one thing I really settled on was this concept of open data, right? Sharing um, police data with the general public. And I thought, well, we can do this. This is something we, we being this little team of, of Bloomberg innovation delivery folks um, could really do and help, you know, check that off the list. So that was my um, introduction into open data, right? So I went from these kind of like data, centric positions into this concept of open data and just found all of these wonderful people in the open data and transparency world. And what I found was that um, this concept of data and open data, and then my background in journalism was really helpful uh, because it, I already had this internal drive to be able to share data and insights and information with the public. Um, and through open data programs, you know, that was really what we were pushing out. So, um, yeah, through that, then, then I got a variety of other opportunities. And, and now I'm really lucky enough to be in a leadership role as a deputy CIO here in New Orleans. 
It's awesome. You're preaching to the choir over here because I'm also a former journalism major. I went to Northwestern Medill and I majored in journalism. And it's just funny because I never really saw value in that right when I graduated because the industry was changing. But I have used those skills so much. And the way that you described it just now, like you have that internal drive to find the story, to interpret the data, to share with the public. You know, I, I think that journalism really translates well to any field, you know, like in the past, there'd be like a stereotype of Medill grads going to get their JDs and being lawyers, you know, but nowadays I feel like data where data is where the money is. And unfortunately for a lot of people, journalism is not. However, you know, telling a story with data, I'm glad that people really value that because it is so important. Um, and props to you because I have played a lot with the open data in New Orleans. Um, and there is a lot that's available to work with crime data. Um, and I'm just, it's nice to see it grow as a portal. And I'm, you know, looking forward to analyzing more data sets as they appear. Um, so, I mean, I, I live in New Orleans, so I feel like I have a bit of a knowledge of the datascape here, but I know that, you know, my listeners would want to know. I personally, I want to ask Melissa, what's the datascape like in Little Rock? Um, I think I would probably use Whitney's phrase from before, garbage in, garbage out. Um, not to say that, that all our data is garbage. It's just, I think for the longest time, Little Rock, like every other local government entity, and I know it's, it's the same at the state and federal level, just at different depths of issues based on the size of the systems. I think it was just data was never thought of as something that was a critical asset, like our roads and our streets and our fire trucks and our police officers and all the gear that they take. It was just kind of, oh, yeah, no, we 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 count how many times we picked up the garbage and we count how many animals we adopted and we count how many people we arrest. But it's just a number. It's Nobody's looking at it. Nobody's doing anything with it. So I think it was kind of this thing that sat over on the side and while we collected it, we, we really weren't digging into it to, to kind of get to what Whitney said about, well, what is the story that it's telling and what what decisions can we make by looking at this and, and seeing it through different lenses? Um, so I would say probably over the last five years since we've just really jumped into this head on and created this full-time position to focus on it. It's definitely changing, and I think the spotlight has been able to be put on those employees, regardless of the department they're in, regardless of their title, that are actually using their data to make things better. And and I love the fact that, that Whitney's background is that of a journalist, because one of my major partners in all this work is our crime analyst supervisor at our police department who got his job because he was the crime beat reporter for the statewide newspaper looking at all of Little Rock's data and he kept asking all these questions and going, well, what about this and what about that? And the police chief at the time said, well, hey, you seem to be paying attention and looking at all this stuff. Why don't you come over here and look at it from the inside? And so he, he left his job as a journalist at the paper and has been working for the city. Um, and so I think he has that unique perspective, like Whitney does too. It's like, what is the story that's being told by this information? And he and his team have done some really cool stuff. But then there's people like one of our code enforcement officers. People think about a code enforcement officer and think, oh, they're out looking for illegal dumping or they're out looking for um, blight in the houses that are broken down or, or whatever. And what do they use data for? She came to one of our very first data academies, which was an internal training to kind of solidify some of the language so that everybody could have that common lexicon and have conversations around what information do you have? Where does it live? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What can we do with it? And hey, if we put yours with theirs, then what does it look like? And she, she ended up becoming the star of the entire two day training session. 
because we were actually focusing on a neighborhood in Little Rock that had high crime rate, it had blight issues, it had um, high poverty level, it had lower education levels. And because of the fact that she's the boots on the ground that's out there in that neighborhood every day communicating with the residents, she was able to bring insights to that conversation that just looking at the dots on the map or the number of XYZ complaints could never have gleaned for that group without her having giving voice to that lived experience piece of it. So I would say, while we're not New Orleans, and we're not near as far down the road as they are, and our team isn't as big and robust as they are because I'm the only full-time employee at the city that data is my job. Um, I think we're making headway, and I think it's we're elevating the conversation to the point that people are starting to understand. If you don't have the information to make good decisions, then how do you justify either spending funds or putting resources towards it or asking for funds without that data to back it up. Say, Melissa, um, we have to fight for anything data we do. Actually, um, currently, we are going to be hiring for my old position again soon. Um, since I left, we haven't had a chance to backfill. In the midst of all of this, our city has gone through a administration change, right? We have eight-year term limits. So we went from having um, the team that I was on that worked with the previous mayor, Mayor Landrieu, um, that was really focused on performance and accountability and metrics and numbers and uh, public-facing um, things, right? So that was really his bag. Um, and our new mayor, um, Mayor Cantrell, she is more focused on, um, I know I hear her say all the time, meeting people where they're at. Um, you know, a lot of with COVID right now, <laughs> you said this phrase, boots on the ground. So we've got a lot of people on the ground. What we're trying to do now, I think, is try to translate between folks' lived experience and working experience and the data that we have available. Um, it makes me think a lot. And I think Melissa, you do a fantastic job of this in Little Rock, and I think we've got a lot, a little bit, a lot to learn um, about training people and, and upskilling folks and using their own data um, and also using it to highlight what's going on. So we definitely have um, a really robust COVID dashboard that's taken from the state data and then built against our metrics so that it's really simple for the user to see, oh, you know, phase two means this and the line is here, but it needs to be here, right? So we explain it very well, um, but that's just one out of many things that we could be doing. Um, and our performance and accountability team actually has shifted focus. So we don't have, we used to have um, this really uh, laser focus on metrics and inviting the public in to our meetings and having them comment on, you know, well, you only did 10 inspections this month, whereas you did 40 last month or whatever, and really having folks answer why, right? Like, was was there a lot of rain, right? Uh, could we not get out? Is You know, whatever. But um, I loved that accountability to our citizens. And so what I would like to see is if, if if we can't focus on using that public meeting as a tool, um, is there a way to use folks like um, Danielle or other folks in the public who are interested in data and having them, you know, pose questions that we can then answer with data um, and really building up our community outside of, of City Hall? That's always been a dream of mine. So um, I think a lot of similar pathways there. I know that a lot of you listening to DataFem, and specifically this episode, are somehow involved in working with or processing government data. 
And no matter where you fall on the system, Tyler Technologies and its data platform solution, Socrata, exists to empower local, state, and federal government entities to connect across and transform siloed data into actionable insights. Socrata is the market leader in making government data discoverable and usable, which leads to safer, smarter, and more vibrant communities that operate efficiently and connect transparently with internal and public stakeholders. Tyler Technologies itself is the largest software and services company solely focused on the public sector with 26,000 plus installations and 10,000 plus sites. If you feel Tyler and Socrata would be a good fit for you in your workplace, please head over to tylertech.com to find out more information. I want to ask your opinions on the trade-off. You know, there are a lot of individuals in both of our cities um, who are asking for more information. But I find that it's a little bit hard to convince, you know, people of more old school thought that data is important. And Melissa, you know, you touched on this, that like it used to be infrastructure that was prioritized, not necessarily like the information coming in. So like, how do you deal with convincing people who are working with you on city government issues, but might not be deep in the data? How do you convince them that investing in data systems and resources is important? I think the one thing that we have going for us right now, horrific as it is, is this international pandemic that we're all living in. Um, Whitney and I were actually together the week before the world got turned on its head and everything shut down because I was at a conference in New Orleans and it was actually the first time she and I ever actually got to meet each other face to face because we've had this Twitter relationship for the last couple of years. Um, and I think because of that and because of leaders needing to have up-to-date information, accurate information, timely information, open to the public information, all of those things that she and I fight for on a daily basis, I think it's kind of shown the light, not just on the local level where we're fighting that fight every day and making sure that it gets pushed to the top of the conversation, but on the state and national level. Because I think to, to her point about the dashboard that New Orleans has been able to put together, which it's, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's fantastic. I use them as an example quite often. But they had somebody that had the forethought to say, we need to put this in a manner in which it makes sense to the public, not to some data wonk somewhere, not to some epidemiologist or the governor or whoever. It needs to make sense to my mamma. And if it makes sense to mamma, we've done our job. Um, and I think that's kind of a lot of the conversation that's been happening, at least here in Little Rock. And I can't imagine that it's not much less, much, much different in New Orleans because I've talked to some of our other data friends from across the country and they're, they're having the same conversation. But I think to your point, Danielle, oh my goodness, we didn't have a remote work policy in place. And do we actually have the technical infrastructure in place to allow our employees to work remotely, those that can? Obviously, a police officer and a sanitation worker, and, and there's certain positions you physically have to be there to do. But like in my position, I don't physically have to be in City Hall to work on the data and to tell data stories. Um, so I think there was some of that that, thankfully, again, I go back to our IT director, he was kind of visionary in the fact that he kept trying to push that stuff to the front. And that was a big part of what I did as his network security manager, because he knew that I had that pre-existing relationship with administration because the guy that was our city manager, when I came back to the city in 2011, happened to have been my boss when I worked in the mayor's office back in 1997. So there was a little bit of continuity there and that kind of helped because I was able to speak his language and do some of the interpretation from the highly technical, this is why you need to invest in this Cisco WebEx system or this Zoom system or this Office 365 or making sure we have enough VPN accounts for everybody. So when they start pounding on the network, we're making sure that they're doing it safely and the proper way. 
Um, and I think because of everyone having to pivot so quickly, um, the conversations that we had just with my own boss in my own office, I report into the mayor's office and I got the phone call from my kids' schools on Thursday, come pick up your kid by this time. And oh, by the way, schools will be closed tomorrow. And then next week we'll be figuring out what school looks like from now until the end of the year. And so I let my boss know that. And she said, okay, that's fine. You can work from home remotely on Friday, but come Monday, we may need to figure out what this looks like. Well, obviously by come Monday, four counties had been shut down and other things in the state started shutting down. And, oh my gosh, Melissa, can you start looking at how we do this and that? What's best practices on I, I have researched more best practices on more topics during this time than I can even remember right now. But I think, again, it's kind of brought all of that to the forefront to say, okay, now we get why you guys were arguing so hard for these things. And I think it's also allowed our IT director to have those conversations with our mayor and city manager, and they're actually putting money towards investing in more of that technical infrastructure, not necessarily on, hey, what's the best practices for data standardization and pointing all of our systems to that golden record for our addressing for the city, but what's it going to take to get our community centers that are sitting on our fiber ring more Wi-Fi access points inside the building that we can then turn into virtual classrooms because we know even though our kids are physically going to school right now, or at least about half of them are, um, we've already had schools that have had high numbers of COVID cases in them and either because of teachers being out or they're trying to do contact tracing to figure out exactly how widespread it is. They've had to go virtual for that school. And there's some of those kids whose parents have no choice because they have a job that they physically have to show up to. So the city's trying to fill that gap and allow our community centers to be that safe space that they can come use as their classroom while mom and dad's at work. So I think because of the situation that we're all living in right now, it's definitely risen a lot of that to the top of mind of people. And we run on a calendar year, budget year, and we're ready to have all those big budget conversations about what does this look like moving into next year and the year beyond. So I think we kind of got forced into it because of the situation that's going on. But in my mind, it's actually a good thing. Yeah, I definitely sympathize with that. I think um, maybe people didn't quite catch on in the past that we need to we need to be informed about our data every single day because it affects the motions of our lives. But I think when you know those motions were so severely hampered, I guess. I mean, that's not a very sensitive word to use, but like, you know, like all of our daily tasks were changed. Um, and, you know, I think that now maybe we're more reliant on data as a public in general, not just the people in the data. Um, for you, Whitney, I have a bit of an obsession with true crime and I did a bit of work at the New Orleans Police Department um, processing crime data. So I do, I, I have to ask, you know, um, also based on what Melissa said, like how has that crime data that you look at, how has the reporting of it changed since COVID? Um, like what changes have you seen in that widespread crime data? That's an interesting question. Um, I would actually... I would go back further. So in uh, 2019, on December 13th, we had an infiltration that um, essentially shut down our operations. Now, it shut down our operations because that was our choice to take everything offline so that the malware didn't infect our network and a bunch of other things. We, we actually caught it before... Um, it was able to do what it wanted to do um, to a variety of our systems and, and files. So we chose that, but that also meant that we had to build back up from scratch. Part of building back up and a part that's still ongoing is building back our connections to the crime data. I think the more relevant even um, data that's really important right now is in relation to civil rights, right? And human rights. Um, 
related to use of force, related to um, police uh, incidents and our public integrity bureau data, um, our, our body cam and car cam metadata, right? So that people can know, oh, I had this interaction on this day at this time. Is there footage from the camera, from the body cam? Um, and then just in general, ensuring that our media, our citizens, residents, uh, anybody who's really interested can not only access all of the open data that we're able to publish with regard to um, officer-involved incidents, um, you know, camera footage, all that good stuff, but also that they can request data that's not open, right, um, currently. And so there's, folks can request, you know, all, all types of things um, related to police reports and public integrity bureau investigations and things like that. And I also manage our public requests portal um, access and, and just in general maintenance. And so um, I, I've seen, you know, more people really taking a hold of, well, this incident happened and I want to know more why and did this violate my rights as a human being, as, um, you know, someone entitled to free speech. Um, and we saw, um, actually was involved, there was um, a protest that tried to go over the Crescent City Bridge and there was a, a rubber bullet issue um, where, you know, he said, she said, did they or did they not, right, um, discharge, quote unquote, rubber bullets um, or pellets, whatever you want to call them. And actually the superintendent, this is an interesting story, he had to request from us, from IT, that he be able to view footage from an external storage device, right? So after the cyber attack, we locked that down. You know, nobody gets to just plug in USBs willy-nilly. Um, and folks have to have a reason and a, a permission and all of this. So he had to ask us permission to use a USB stick to view the footage from the uh, bridge incident so that he could determine if uh, folks fired when they weren't supposed to fire. And actually, I believe he came out later and said, yes, it did happen. And they weren't authorized to do that. So now we have to investigate that. So. Um, as a, I think this is also, you know, my quest for justice as a former journalist, right? I want, I want people to have all the resources that they need and that they can to stand up for their rights. And um, yeah, that's a huge passion of mine. That's awesome. Um, I, how does the public get involved? Like, for example, with me, I know that use of force data set that's super robust and I just plug it into R and start messing around. Do you ever like interact with people from the public who like want to use open source software to process data? Yes and no, and, and, and I'll qualify that. Um, so we've got part of what our data governance structure required um, per the policy that got passed by our Mirror Board of Directors was that we had to have resident involvement in that governance structure. And it took me over a year to find somebody to fill that spot. And I'm actually looking for somebody to, to fill another one um, because of exactly what Whitney said. We wanted to be able to have that feedback and that insight and that participation so that we could have conversations around, this is why we can publish this type data, but we're going to consciously not publish this type data um, like speaking on the domestic violence, because if you look at our police data, we include a rape incident in our data to say, okay, on a certain date and time, there was a rape that happened in the city of Little Rock, but we strip all the addressing information on it. And if there was any associated crime, like a breaking and entering or an aggravated assault that went along with it, we strip the addressing off that as well, because we know some of those crimes happen in people's houses. And we don't want that information going out to re-victimize that victim. Um, so we have participation from the standpoint of we've got residents using our information and they'll go on our open data platform and they can use the tools that are baked into the platform itself. 
because um, there's a couple of neighborhood associations that, that have created their own visualizations based on here's our polygon in town and here's all the different data that we can pull and have conversations around here's what's happening in our part of Little Rock. But I think to your point specifically about ingesting it into other systems and doing another analysis, that's one of the things that I've kind of struggled with here in Little Rock. I know other cities have like Code for America brigades or have deeper working partnerships with a local university or, or other groups like that. Um, I've got some partnerships in place with, with both the University of Arkansas at Little Rock and the University of Arkansas, the main campus up in Fayetteville. And they do analysis on certain types of data. Um, but that's been one of kind of those missing pieces of having that partner in the community that has the skill set and the want or need to say, hey, I, I grabbed your stuff and I did some crunching, whether it be in R or Python or whatever. Um, and here's the, here's the analysis that I was able to come up with and then being able to have that two-way dialogue back between the city. Um, because to your point about like the use of force data in New Orleans, that's one of the data sets that we haven't been able to release here in Little Rock. And it's not because we don't want to release it. It's just because of the system that it's kept in and, and how it's kept. We're trying to figure out what's the easiest path to get that information out of that back-end system and into a format that we can actually publish it on our open data platform so that people have open access to it. Yeah, I'll echo it's a challenge. Um, we had a really robust back and forth again when we used to have the public meetings, right? We had given people a forum to come to City Hall and see the reports from data um, and from open data even, um, and then comment and interact on that, right? So that was a platform and that was an actual time and place that people could put on their calendar and do it. Um, without that, it kind of, for us, it, it ebbs and flows related to certain events. So um, one event I can remember and, um, Melissa kind of touched on something similar to this that uh, had to have been three years ago, four years ago. We had a really bad rainstorm and the, uh, the streets flooded all over town in places they had never flooded before. And you could see on social media that people were like, I know the pumps aren't on in my neighborhood because it's never done this before. And the sewage and water board kept saying, all the pumps are on, all the pumps are on, everything's working tip top. Come to find out that was a lie, right? And um, the folks who were tracking this, right, there were some people who were engaged in data and tracking these types of things long before this event. And right, you know, right after when there were serious debates in the news about like, how do we get information about the pumps? How do we get information about um, whether they're on and the catch basins and all of these things? Um, you know, somebody came to me and said, hey, look, I've been doing this analysis on my blog for years. Check it out. Shows it to me. Uh, come to find out, Sewage and Water Board ended up hiring this person because he was so well-versed in um, that type of analysis and looking at how the water flowed, where it flowed, why it flowed that way, blah, blah, blah. So um, he kind of gave us some good insights into what we could share with the public and what would make sense. Um, I think he also advised us and connected us to some housing advocates, right? So it, it really becomes a, um, for us anyway, it, it becomes topical. And the housing advocates that we ended up connecting with uh, were influential in us developing our short-term rental uh, data story. So, like many cities, um, and and you know, can preface this by before COVID, we had a and and probably still do a real serious problem with properties being bought up and used as Airbnbs instead of as long-term permanent housing for residents. We have a huge percent of our population that survives and lives and thrives 
by doing service industry work, by doing music work, by doing performance work, um, you know, anything and everything you can think of related to tourism. Our tourism is centered in, you know, our French Quarter and, and certain areas around downtown. It behooves our folks who serve those people and work in those industries to live nearby um, because, right, transportation is expensive. And um, it, it just, it, that's how it, it has been and it has worked for X years, you know, hundreds of years. With folks buying up this real estate and essentially pushing our musicians and service industry people into other parts of the city, you know, particularly places that are um, far away, maybe not on a bus route, not any public transportation to their job. Um, it really places a burden not only on those folks in the industry and, and that type of thing, but also um, on the city as a whole uh, when we're trying to ensure that all of our residents are served equitably. And so we worked with some housing advocates to put together some maps about where um, Airbnbs were popping up, what people could do about them, you know, just some resources. Um, and, and sometimes it behooves the government to actually let the outside agency push that information out. So that's kind of what we did. We helped them with some GIS analysis, some additional data fields, um, and really just kind of ensured that we were all on the same page and let them run with the data. So it it's I I love interacting with the public. I love it when people ask me questions. I can't always answer them all, but um I, I would like to build a better and more robust relationship with folks in the community. We do have a Code for America Brigade here. Brigade is that it? The smaller breakoff group, I think. Um, for folks, you know, not actively serving in Code for America. Um, and they had done some work on our reentry programming, but um, it's, it's a long-term goal of ours to have a solid group of engaged data residents, citizens, whatever you want to say, to work hand-in-hand -hand with us on what's next, what's important, how do we get that information to people, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've been going back and forth kind of about how data differs for our cities. How can we, you know, serve our individual cities, but then also collaborate with each other to create worldwide change with data? Like, you know, we've talked a lot about how to strengthen data literacy within our communities and make use of people's skills and be more open and collaborative. But how do we do that on a larger scale you know, with people like the three of us who are very data literate in our own cities, how can we band together and um, work to create widespread change? I'm just going to say first, um, the one thing I learned in my Bloomberg Innovation Delivery Team days, and which I really wholeheartedly believe is true, you have to have leadership that believes in data and facts and truth. And unfortunately, right now at the federal level, that is not the case. And so I think that's why cities are so much at the forefront of this data revolution, whatever you want to call it, data innovation, um, data usage, because there is no solid leadership there. And in, in, I guess it probably varies by state, but really our state doesn't really have a ton of data leadership either. Um, and so I think until you, you can make pockets of change, right? And that change can come together and swell up and, and infiltrate various areas of um, study, focus, work, um, research, whatever. But I think globally, right, nationally, if we want to start making sure that data is used for decision making, data is transparent to everyone and we're able to call BS, right, on stuff that is not true, um, then we have to have leaders who are bought into that concept, that it's important 
um, you know, there have been several federal resources that have been taken down um, since the current administration started. So it's, it's super important to have folks who are data literate or at least understand the importance of data and are willing to stand behind it. And I would say that I agree 1,000% with Whitney um, because that, that's probably the most difficult part of my job is it's not that our mayor and our leadership doesn't go, yay, that's important, yay, let's be transparent. It's that having that innate understanding day in and day out and being that cheerleader for it and being able to use it in such a way that I'll go back to my earlier analogy that my mamaw can understand it. Um, I think one of, I think part of what to Whitney's point cities have done is we've stepped in and filled a void because we're uniquely positioned to do so because we're the first line of defense for anybody. I mean, every day I interact with some city service, whether it's my trash being picked up or it's the water being provided to my house or it's my kids being able to access the library or you name it. Whereas I may or may not interact with a state agency, but maybe once a month, once a quarter, uh, maybe once a year and federal Usually it's the IRS filing my taxes every year, um, unless I have to go through like the State Department to get a passport or something. So I think from that aspect, given the fact that we're the closest to where people are and touch people so much more on a daily basis. And I think the other point that that when you made about just the Bloomberg initiative, the fact that when Little Rock started this and we actually put our application in to become one of those cities um, in 2015, the city that we looked at to use an example because, oh my gosh, they've got some of the same problems we do was New Orleans because we looked at their program that they had at the time that was called Lightstat and looking through that and going, oh my gosh, look how they've overlaid these different pieces of data to tell the story and to actually start affecting change by systematically working through this issue that they have that just, it rang so true for Little Rock. And I think the fact that I've got friends like Whitney in New Orleans, who I know is working her tail off every day to make New Orleans the best New Orleans can be. And and we've got friends like Brendan up in Anchorage, Alaska, that is doing all things amazing. And we all wish we could be Brendan. And people like Sam, who was the chief data officer in Syracuse, New York, and Mike down in Miami. And the fact that I know these people from all across the country and at any given moment, if I'm trying to figure out, hey, we're we're working our way through this data problem, either figuring out what should the, the formatting look like, what should the use case look like, how do we present this in a manner that makes sense to, to people in the public, I've got resources that I can call on that five years ago I didn't. I had no clue that any other city was using information the way that there are so many cities using information now. And I think the other big piece that to me just showed somebody stepping in and filling the void earlier this year when everybody was trying to figure out what is your COVID dashboard going to look like and everybody was struggling to figure out, okay, what are those numbers come out? And the state of Arkansas started putting their stuff together and it was a daily PDF and, and it wasn't giving people the information that they needed. There was a lady up in Northwest Arkansas that owned her own business and is a mother of a teenager and a toddler and just cared But by the way, her background is as a journalist and she knew how to ask questions and she knew how to tell stories. And she just literally started going in and scraping the data by hand every day and reformatting it into Google Sheets and taught herself how to use Tableau and created a website. And I love the reason why she created the website was because she said, hey, dad, I'm going to start doing this thing and I'm going to start pushing these data points out on Twitter because it seems like people aren't really understanding what's going on. And (laughs) she said her dad said to her, yes, sweetie, you know, I don't do that Twitter thing. And she was like, oh, okay, well, let me create a website because you can at least use a website. And she has over 12,000 followers on her Twitter handle. 
And because of the fact that school has started back up and because of the fact that people in the state of Arkansas have used her site as such a resource to understand what the heck is going on on any given day when it comes to COVID-related data, she actually just partnered with the University of Arkansas and their School of Journalism has taken over her website so she can have some of her life back. But to me, again, that's people who care and people who know enough to ask good questions, because I think you've heard from Whitney and I both, neither one of us have a hardcore data background. We don't have a programming background. We don't have a database administration background. We both just have really big urges to make things better and ask good questions. And to me, I think that's where, again, at the city level, We've got so many people that want to do that. And it's just making sure that we keep increasing the size of the tent and letting more people into the tent so that all perspectives and all voices can be heard through this process. People in your position, people in my position, how can we empower women and other, you know, non-represented groups, of course, but mainly women, since we all are women, um, how can we empower more young women to get involved with government and with data both? Demystifying data for people, period, um, is always helpful in bringing people over to the nerd side, <laughs> the data nerd side. Um, what I've been consciously trying to do, um, one thing is I'm now um, m mentoring uh, a woman who's in uh, Tulane, the School of Professional Advancement, um, who's, she's actually interested in cybersecurity. Having a, a core group of people that you respect and that are maybe not data people, but adjacent to data people. You know, we've got a, a number of females on our team who are in uh, GIS or web. Um, those folks are, are data and technology. I kind of just loop it all together, data and technology. Um, but really preaching data usefulness throughout a technology space and then trying to use the connections with other folks that you have to continue to spread the word, right? To, to kids, to um, groups that they're involved in. Um, I got, I've, I've gotten so many random invites to speak. I think the, the, one of the most odd ones was I spoke to some folks who worked at the federal government. They were accountants and I was talking about city data, um, but there were just these, through lines that go through anything, right? So if you can pick out of data the things that make me most excited about it, right, which are um, illuminating information you might not otherwise have, um, using that information for good and not evil, um, using that information so that people in elected positions of power make better decisions, um, using that information so that the public can get better services, better um, attention to needs that they have through whatever means that is, whether it's news or um, affinity groups or nonprofits working toward those causes. Um, I think that's the best way to bring people into this type of data literacy because it does get exciting once you can, like, you know, see your data on a map. And, and the more that stuff is fostered and the more those narratives are out there, I think the more curious folks get um, about data and just technology in general. I guess from my perspective, I would say whenever I'm out in the community and I'm, I'm talking about whatever piece of data that I'm, I'm talking about, because I think Whitney touched on this earlier, that's, that's my favorite part of my job is being able to stand up in front of a neighborhood association and have a conversation with fellow Little Rock residents, because I live here too, and I'm raising my kids here, and have a conversation about what our issues are and figuring out innovative solutions for it. I always try and look through the audience and find somebody that either, A, would be that person that, that wouldn't raise their hand and wouldn't speak up, or B, that 
was never given the chance to speak up. And whenever I'm having those conversations, whether it's a training or just a presentation, I always try and make eye contact with that person and try and engage with them somehow to make sure that they have a chance to have a voice. Um, and I think the other part of it is just telling people, look, it's, I'm not this super NASA brainiac person. I'm a mom who cares. Um, and I think just coming at it from the human perspective and coming at it not from, oh, I have this title and I do this wonky thing at the city that people don't always understand tends to open the door to more conversations that may not necessarily have taken place if I had come at it from, hi, I'm Melissa from the city of Little Rock and I'm here to tell you all good things. Um, so that's just kind of how I take it. I always try and put the human first in what I'm doing. I feel like that's something that can't be said enough. We always talk about finding the human approach in the data, but it's so important that we stress that over and over again, because I don't personally believe that numbers are impersonal or unfeeling. I think that we can tap into a lot of deeper emotions when we look at and are faced with data. So I really want to thank you both for participating in this podcast with me. And I know that we're going to continue these conversations and build a really comprehensive data women network in the South. And whoever wants to be a part of that, who's listening to this episode, you know where to find me. I'm on Twitter at Dikayo Data, or you can email me at Dikayo at DikayoData.com. There are, as you witnessed in this episode, so many ways to get involved with the data in your city or surrounding area. And I would be so happy to continue that conversation with anybody who's interested. And in the meantime, you know that you can always support Dikayo Data by going to patreon.com slash datafem. I should have some exciting updates coming in for patrons new and old in the coming weeks. And I can't wait to see you for next week's episode.